Hello again, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Early Education Show. It's really great to be back with you. Um, we've got more exciting topics lined up for discussion tonight. Um, it's really great to be back with Lisa and Leanne to uh, talk all things early childhood education. Uh, so we'll get right into it now. I um, Oh, I should, of course, welcome my fellow co-hosts. I do occasionally forget to do that because I want to get straight into the discussion. But um, I'm obviously Liam McNicholas. I'm Lisa Bryant, and I just want to point out, Liam, that although we record this at night time, people can be listening to this at any time of day or night, in the shower, in the car, anywhere. It's a good so point, Lisa. it might Lisa. not be night time. I, I just have yeah. so much fun chatting with the two of you, I forget we're even recording this and sending it out. So, yes, we do record <laughs> them at night, and one day I will stop doing that, but it doesn't seem likely tonight. <laughs> and after that, I'll just say I'm the bachelorette, Leanne Gibbs. <laughs> Leanne, you're married. <laughs> I'm a double agent tonight. <laughs> Leanne's been pushing for a spin-off podcast, which basically is early childhood educators discussing the bachelorette. We will keep you posted on the uh, the progress of that spin-off podcast. I think probably Lisa and I would have to bow out of that one, wouldn't we, Lisa? Um, I have no knowledge whatsoever. <laughs> it could be educative for you. It could be. Well, I'm going to, I finally get, we're up to episode five, and I get to do the news of the week this week. So that's pretty exciting for me. And uh, I've chosen one not to uh, play the home field advantage, but I've chosen one from the ACT, where I'm based. Um, and it is an article which was in uh, Fairfax. So they own, I think, domain.com.au, and I sort of found it by looking at the Canberra Times, but it talks about an uh, early childhood centre based in a relatively new suburb, actually quite near to where I live, um, in Casey, which has sold uh, for $6 million. It, I, I, it's hard to know where to begin on this one. I know the, so the centre, the, the article's a little confusing. It doesn't sort of mention whether the, um, the centre, the, the owners of the centre are selling it to someone else, so it's owned by... Um, a local uh, early childhood organisation, uh, sorry, a for-profit organisation called Canberra Early Learning, but it is sold for $6.45 million, which for a variety of reasons, look, the ACT is a very small jurisdiction, so we don't get a lot of media and press, but the big issues facing early childhood in uh, early childhood education and care in Canberra is at the moment is a big oversupply of centres. There's been a lot of organisations like Guardian and G8 coming in, opening up very large new centres and uh, basically oversupplying and causing educator shortages. It is absolute madness. So there's probably two things. It is absolute madness of me that it's sold for six point five million anyway. Like that's it. It is just is crazy. Lynn, can I ask a question? Yes, please. Is it the the, is it the land, the property that sold for that much, or is it well it the is, business? The article's not entirely clear. So it says a tenanted property, which to me means the building and means the probably the business as well, doesn't it? No, I think it's just the business, just, just the land and 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 buildings improvements on the land. It's but, not the service itself. Yes, but even and that doesn't make sense. Because it hasn't changed ownership, it's just the same owner supplying the service. They're probably just leasing the premises off the. And the, and this is part of the uh, the reason why the, these are so high is part of the um, you know all of the the expansion of leasing arrangements and that came out of the ABC debacle. So 
we're seeing we're still seeing those well, things inflated. Well, this is really what I wanted to talk about. So separate to the specific situation in Canberra, where we don't there are no more centres needed. So I'm just not sure why it's solved for that much. But this is a pretty big symptom and indicator of the stuff that was leading up to the huge ABC crash with. Um, you know, centres or sites or, you know, areas for early childhood just going for well above what they're meant, meant to be doing. Are we, I mean, this to me seems like a pretty, I mean, we, we see a few of them, but this to me just seems like a pretty big indication that we're going down a path we've seen before and I'm not sure if we, that's sort of getting enough attention and press. Mm, well, all the signals are there. So that's a, that is a gigantic one, isn't it? That seems crazy. So, hey, at least, yep, at least something exciting is happening in Canberra. It does happen. Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine what the bees will have to be at that oh. service now. <laughs> it does seem like, yeah, I mean, it seems like absolute madness. But again, not the only... So, yeah, it doesn't look like there'll be a new centre there necessarily, but a lot of you know, the, the mixture in Canberra has changed from predominantly community not-for-profit to very overwhelmingly private for-profit and all very large centres and um, a lot of the, the big chains like G8 and It's Guardian. interesting though, to look at why um, property developers really like childcare tenants, to the extent that I think it's Meriton, um, the owner of Meriton said if he had his way, he'd put a childcare centre in all four corners of every building that he built. (laughs) And he did this on the grounds that it's government-guaranteed cash flow coming into them, so you're not going to have a childcare centre that's going to go bankrupt There'll always be a need for childcare and it's it's a growing area so that, you know, he saw it as somewhere where you could keep inflating the rents of, of childcare tenants because their income would keep growing because of the need and because of the guaranteed government funding. But then he mm, decided it was actually better than rather than just him developing them and and selling them, you know, to or you know, leasing them out, he'd actually keep them on, and so he's um like not as in oh keep them you know, as a business himself is that what it was yeah not as a childcare business but he would keep the the property and continue to lease it rather than selling those particular selling the childcare um. Yeah, parts of his buildings. Well, it's still seen as a very a very good investment. It's still considered to be a very you know great return, very good investment for that. I think that was part of the the the, that article was also part of a bigger one in um, in our local papers about how it is a great investment. So you know, it was a real sort of recommendation. Keep investing in. Childcare centre buildings might be. I think it would probably the topic we'll have to add to the slate for a bigger discussion um, as one of our main topics down the road. Because I don't know, I've worked in the front lines of early childhood for a while and in management roles for the past five or six, and I, I don't. It, I, I, it seems to be a bit of a well, for my view, it's a bit of a myth that there's huge money being made in early childhood because it's bloody tricky. The balancing of uh, you know educators and occupancy. Is really really hard and tricky, and I think people, yeah, just to seem to assume it's I a think, money maker, but I, I don't think, think it is. I think it's just found that. Yeah, we, we might add mm. that to our. Um, add another. Yeah. Oh, to the list. Yes, another one to add to our mm-hmm. slate, to our big ongoing spreadsheet. Well, we might 
get on to topic number one, which just requires a very short hop across the ACT border to New South Wales. So for those who may have seen this, uh, made, you know, pretty, made the runs of the media pretty much uh, nationally, there was a big announcement about a week and a half ago from the New South Wales Premier, Mike Baird, that there would be a significant injection, I'm going to put that in quotation marks because I think Leanne and Lisa might have something to say about that, of funding to the early childhood education and care uh, sector in New South Wales. Essentially, uh, the headline is that you know it would be more funding to essentially lower fees for uh, long day care and preschool. Uh, now, obviously, you would assume good news, fantastic, wonderful, but uh, there's been some interesting points of view that have come out after it and uh, it's you know something I follow with interest but I'm not based in New South Wales and I don't necessarily know the huge history but we're very lucky to have Lisa and Leanne who both uh, have a long history with the uh, I think probably the only word is the, the, the battle or the war for decent funding for early childhood education in New South Wales so I thought I might Lisa maybe turn to you first you sort of have happy to give us a bit of a a summary potted history up until this announcement. What's sort of been going on with New South Wales preschool funding? Um, Not much (laughs) over the last decade or so. When I first came into the sector about 14, 15 years ago, I was um, given a task which was to try and do some advocacy for New South Wales community-based preschools, which at that stage had had their funding frozen for 20 years by the New South Wales government. In that 10 or 13 years, not much has happened, but there's been continual announcements about funding happen. So just, um, I think, first of all, so that people understand why it's important and why it's not just really a New South Wales-based issue, there's about... 750 community-based preschools in New South Wales, around 70% of community-based education and care services in New South Wales are in fact these preschools. So, yeah, there's only 30% of the community-based sector in New South Wales is is, um, long daycare, the rest are preschools, yeah? So it's a really important part of the not-for-profit you know, childcare sector in New South Wales. Some of them are run by organisations such as KU and Uniting Care and others are, are very much smaller services that are run by parents in a true community-based model. Some are in small towns in New South Wales that are open just for, you know, like two days a week and they may cater for as few as six children while um, others, you know, are are big services with three rooms, you know, and open five days and catering for, you know, up to 120, 130 children. So there's quite a bit of disparity in the size of the services. The, um, as I said before, the funding's been frozen for 20 years, but in the last 10, 13 years, there's been repeated announcements, mostly in relation to advocacy pressure about new funding for these services. But none of the new announcements have taken the funding nearly up to what other states fund education and care. So on a per capita basis, per child basis, New South Wales funds the lowest amount of money for education and care services across Australia. What does that mean? It means that we've got the highest fees. Preschool fees in New South Wales vary between, you know, like the cheapest ones per day would be about $20 per day. Um, 
and they'd go up to about $60 per day, whereas other states, you know, you can pretty much get a preschool spot in, a, in the year before school for under $10 a day. So New South Wales families are paying a lot, lot higher rates. And the impact of that is a lot lower participation rates. So New South Wales has the fewest number of children going, having a preschool education in the year before school. So the latest funding and announcement needs to be seen in this context of a history of underfunding. But what happened a few months ago is that the, the um, Auditor General got on to what was happening. And they publicly outed, that, so this is the New South Wales Auditor General, they publicly outed the government on their absolutely appalling record on preschool funding a few months ago. And they pointed out that not only had the government, New South Wales government, underspent their own budget for early education and care by $350 million over four years, but they had also pocketed and not spent $227 million in universal access funds received from the federal government. So, yeah, this is the universal access funding that in, say, Victoria, everyone refers to as the 15 hours funding because it means the difference between children in Victoria getting 12 hours of preschool education a week or getting 15 hours. But in New South Wales, they just hadn't spent $227 million on that. So what was interesting about the announcement last week where Baird announced that $115 million new funding had been found for preschool education was that it was nothing more than some of, but not all of, the federal funding that they'd never passed on to services. So it's not new money. Absolutely not one cent of it came from the New South Wales government. It's just releasing some of that money that they've had from the federal government over the last four years. Thanks for that background, Lisa. I think it's, yeah, New South Wales <laughs> manages to uh, be very complicated in that space. So, yeah, look, and Lisa's just sort of touched on the recent announcement, which, yeah, does seem to be in response primarily to being caught out a bit by the Auditor General. But, Leanne, you know, you've been in this sort of fight and battle for a long time. What's your sort of take on the most recent funding? And it seems to be... I mean, the New, the New South Wales government in particular are very much trying to spend and says, look at us, we're spending lovely money on early childhood education and children. So is that a bad thing? Well, I, I think the thing with the Auditor General's report was that they did actually say that some of the um, policy initiatives that had been made over recent years was actually working to increase the number of children accessing early childhood education. But when you get down to it, in just very, very simple terms, the amount that's available for every four-year-old, for example, in New South Wales, as a result of this new funding, is about $8 a week. And that's not very much money, really, is it, to dedicate. I, I remember at some one stage we were looking at uh, giving every three and four year old a, a, an early childhood education in New South Wales and saying $3,000 a year would make that happen. And this is like $300 a year, um, additional additional funding for, for each four year old. But it just gets down to the problem that early childhood education is still too costly in New South Wales and it probably 
that this money has to be passed on to families to reduce fees and it's saying that they're going to be reduced by up to 30%, but that's still not enough in New South Wales because fees are still too too high. There's not enough spend, There's not enough investment from the state government to actually bring that down to free or close to free as it is in other states. So it's this kind of... It's an inequality in a way. It's it's perpetuating that because people still have to pay privately, I suppose, for, you know, have to give from their household income when effectively it should be free. So it, it just, it looks nice. It looks, it's always nice to have more money for sure. I mean, there's there's always, but the problem is that it, it's not enough for a start. It should be free and despite the fact that the New South Wales government has said for years that 600 hours is too difficult and they understand that it's a model that doesn't work in New South Wales, this is what the um, payment of the funding to the services is based on. So services must, um, you know, provide the 600 hours and it's a very difficult model for New South Wales to to um, work with. Although I, I should be careful when I'm saying that because I know that a number of preschools are actually working with that 600 hours. So part of the issue, I think, is we have, so we have, you mentioned the National Partnership Agreement. So this was a big um, agreement by the uh, federal, state and territory governments at the time in 2009, I think, unless uh, either of you wanted to correct me, I think it was 2009, um, which was basically essentially funding to ensure that there would be um, at minimum 15 hours a week of uh, early education in the year before school, so essentially for four-year-olds. Um, but as in so many things in Australia, we're so small, we're, what, 23 million people, it's rolled out entirely differently in almost every state and territory. So um, mm. to cross back across the border in the ACT, we have the government, um, similar to Victoria, so was providing 12 hours, and this is basically used as top-up funding to provide 15 hours of fully funded, uh, so it's completely free of charge to access, but it's, it's separate to early childhood education and care and long daycare centres. So, you know, my daughter at the moment attends a, uh, an ACT government preschool. Um, which is great in terms of how that's managed and run is probably, you know, the easiest way to use that funding, but it does create issues in terms of then how the, you know, some imbalances between the respect and value given to preschool teachers in the ACT as compared to um, early childhood educators and early childhood teachers working in long daycare. They're viewed as very different because of the direct government funding. But so we... but. Said it's done very differently in the other states and territories as well. New South Wales, just, and I very much remember a lot of the infographics that you two have been involved in putting together, why New South Wales is not only so far behind in terms of the ability of um, children and families to access, because I think we should always remember that any cost is a barrier to someone. So anytime it's mm. any cost at all, it is a barrier to a child accessing. Why do you think, so given that we know it can work or in different ways, and we can probably argue about whether it works perfectly or not, but we know it can work relatively well um, in some states and territories. Why is New South Wales not only behind, but so far behind? Because it doesn't put any money in itself. That's, I mean, it's, you know, other states <laughs> yeah. actually contribute money. I can't tell you how many times we've looked at Victoria, for example, and just thought it's not even about the money that goes uh, into directly subsidised fees. It's all of the different programs that we seem to be watching flourish around, um, yeah, you know, better, 
just better outcomes for children. And I, I, New South Wales just doesn't put its own money in. Liam, to, to me, like this is one of the great puzzles of living in New South Wales, but I see it across a lot of a lot of programs and I think it's bad policy implementation, bad policy design, bad policy implementation. As Leanne said, you know, preschools need to um, increase their enrolments to 600 hours per year. For those that can't work out where that figure came from, it's because they can't do 15 hours a week over the 40 weeks they're open, so they've expanded it to 600 hours per year. So what the New South Wales government has done is keeps designing new funding models to try and achieve preschools to get that 600 hours. Why is that so important? Because some of the funding from the feds is performance-based. So unless New South Wales preschools start to deliver 600 hours to children, the New South Wales government doesn't get the funding from the federal government, right? So they design new funding models after new funding models to try and achieve this. And look, I'm reluctant to talk about policy in front of Leanne, who's actually got a degree in this stuff, but it's about, it's designed around a, a policy lever known as rational choice. And what that is, is essentially the belief that a service, a, a preschool service, Given a choice where one action would lead to higher funding, we'll make a rational choice to go with that model and take the action that the policy is designed to provoke, having more children attending 600 hours in the year before school, that they'll do that. So they'll all change their delivery method to try and get the higher funding. And they've done this in various ways over the years. They've had a funding cap designed to, you know, that you lost money if you had more children than a service could fit for 600 hours a year. You had higher payments for certain groups like Aboriginal children to incentivise services to go after those children to get more funding. And then you had disincentives for enrolling the wrong sort of child. So if you enrolled a three-year-old when the policy was designed about enrolling four-year-olds, you'd actually lose funding. You wouldn't just not get funding, you'd lose funding. This new model that they brought out last week has a complete whammy in it, in that, yes, you get more money, your service will get more money, more money for each child that's enrolled 600 hours, but it will actually get no money anymore for a child that's only enrolled, say, in a preschool for one day a week. So if, you know, if you're in a community and a family can only afford to send a child for one day a week, and remember with those high fees, that's often a choice that families have to make, then that service won't get funding for that child. And they, they wouldn't and have to make that a, choice if it, if, if it was free or close to free because that people, I mean, that, that's exactly why it works in other states is and why, people, why, the, why children go for the 600 hours and then... It, the states have paid their money from from the federal government because it, people go. So that it's and I think there was one stage here you'll remember, Lisa, when there was a. Um, it's been a couple of times where it's just been a, a fee strategy and it's drastically reduced fees. And the yeah, next we'll, day we'll after that fee reduction, but after that fee reduction was you know announced to families. Services were full the next day. <laughs> it was that. It was that quick. It's that easy 
to to see it and it's it's just it, it, i mean it seems it seems illogical that there are so many different versions of the way that the the funding models should work because it would just be easier if it was just fully funded hey I think this is yeah, for me, precisely. yeah, and look, as someone who's a little bit separate from the New South Wales um, debate, but, you know, hearing the stuff that I've heard time and time again in general about funding, I think a lot of this is just the absolute failure. And I think we have to, given the this, the stack of evidence about how important this is, it, it's bloody-mindedness at this point, the failure to understand that the investment in this space is not just about, well, it's available and it's there and they just need to access it and if they can't afford to get a job, it's about that really important point that for, for, for any number of families, any cost is a barrier. For this to work, for the National Partnership Agreement to meet its requirements, and the New South Wales government signed up for it, as did every other state and territory, for that to work... You're right, it has to be free or as near to free as we can possibly make it. And we can make it free, it's just whether we choose to spend that money or not. And this is, mm. and for me, getting a little cranky, this is, part of me goes, they, they, and we're seeing this at a federal level as well, that they just resent every single cent that is spent on children, on every single cent that is spent on well, either people that can't vote or people that they think won't go out and get a job and contribute to the economy. This is where then, so they don't see it as an Children are the ultimate bludgers, Liam. They are the ultimate bludgers. And I, I, the two at home have not, have, haven't done a day's work in their life, but um, I'm getting on to that. But it, that, that to me, and I think we're sometimes shy about coming away from it, but it was interesting having spent, well, I actually, this, you know, being the ridiculous nerd that I am in April, I went to the Senate hearing, the public hearings, um, about the Jobs for Families uh, package. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to get on a rant on that one right now, but it was really clear listening to several members of the Senate committee, and you can probably guess which political party they belong to, they just resented that this money was going to something they did not see as valuable and it was going to something that would not have an immediate workplace benefit to you know, the, the economy mm. and workforce productivity, they resent the money, they resent every cent that goes to it and they will fight to keep as much as they think they can get away with. And it's it's changing that, um, the the mindset, and it's, well, politician mindset, but I was listening to some report about this and saying that fees would be reduce, reduced and that, um, and that even rich families would get the reduction. And it's, it's still in our heads that you have to pay for preschool or early childhood education because it's not it's not school you know so you've got to people still feel like the media still feels that you should you should pay for it if you've yeah, got enough an money then you should pay it's an for individual it issue. Yeah. yeah, it's a luxury. It's like a luxury item. And the New South Wales government certainly thinks so, because only two percent or two three percent of, you know, their education budget, their state education budget, is spent on early education. So it's not that mm. money isn't being spent on education. It's just the early education. It's not. Yeah, Lim, I'd, like my anger about this is just absolutely uncontrollable and I'll try and keep it into step but there's a pattern with each of these announcements right and they do it now every year every two years there's a new announcement preschool funding problem solved in New South Wales the problem is is that it's never enough money 
it's always federal money. It's not state money. So it's, you know, just announcing some money that they've got no right to claim as their own, but they try and get um, political kudos from it. There's bad communication from it about the de- from the department about it. So services are left not knowing what's happening, not knowing how they are meant to maximise their funding. It's a very complex funding model. If you saw the amount of administration that must go into this funding, you'd sh- you'd just be shocked. For services that are getting you know, less than a few hundred thousand each a year, there's acres of administration around it and formulas that are just so complex that I don't know how anyone could work out what they're supposed to do. It's always got bad timeframes. So this particular one, this new funding model, comes into play in July of next year. Services have already enrolled for the whole of next year. They know who's coming to their preschool next year. But from July, suddenly, if you've got a child there one day, you won't get any money for it. It's too late for you to do anything about that. You've already enrolled the child. What do you do? Allow them to come for the first six months of the year because that's when they're funded. And then come July 2017, say, oh, sorry, Harry, you've got to go because you're not a funded child anymore. Instead, we'll take this other one that will attract more money to the service. They continually apply this same policy lever of rational choice, ignoring the fact that services are pulled between what their community needs and wants. And it may well include some one-day care or it may include, you know, 12 hours of care a week rather than the, the 15 hours or 600 hours that the policies designed to actually get people to do. There's also a continual silencing from the department and from the government of any dissent. You know, when people say this isn't working, they just shut down that and say it does work. This time they've co-opted the support of peak organisations to actually implement a policy. And above all, the department seems to lack any any sort of distance from the political implementation. So it's the New South Wales state government that have decided to implement this plan and the department isn't there providing impartial advice saying, no, that's not actually maybe not going to work. They've just, you know, gone ahead with it. So to me, it's just bad policy, badly applied. Right past the valley of Liam. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to—I was tempted to, as, as my my unenviable job of keeping track of how long we're going, and knowing we probably need to get on to the next topic, so we're not keeping people <laughs> too long. But um, I think you know part of the reason we set up this podcast, as well as just loving getting together and having a chat and solving Australia's early childhood problems between the three of us, is also. Uh, that advocacy space and actually, you know, having conversations with uh, people listening to us who um, may want to know, well, what do I do next? So I thought I might turn to both of you briefly, see how I'm trying to control the time frame. I'm going to do my best, but maybe starting with you, Leanne, and maybe just, you know, if you were either a teacher, an educator or a centre director, what's your sort of recommendation as an advocate to what you think, you know, is the best way forward? What would you do? I'm always kind of about sort of going high, like trying to um, not not in the, not in what you say, but I, I'm actually sort of thinking let's look sort of strategically and keep 
pushing forward with that one message around early childhood education being being free or close to free for every family. So I and I, I think with that it's all about you know plugging away at your elected reps um, and keeping on bringing their attention. Um, to the fact that early childhood education is really good for children and really good for communities and um, just keeping at that message over and over again until it becomes robotic and everybody repeats it back and then they start throwing money at it. That's it, yeah. Anything that ends with throwing money at it is always, you know, the best throwing, way to go. Throwing money at good stuff. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of part of what we've been hearing this week with all of the, the welfare, you know, story and all that sort of stuff. We're just throwing money at people and, you know, that's not good for them, um, which is a whole other issue. But it's throwing money at high-quality early childhood education that is actually going to make a difference in, in communities and in society. And that's... And that's not throwing good money at bad things. That's throwing good money at great things. So I just think, you know, being able to, for every service to be able to operate without, with with security up ahead, without fear of having to reconfigure their, their enrolment patterns and their funding landscape and all of those things, and knowing that their, their um, staff could be paid well, that would be the ultimate, wouldn't it? You, that you didn't have to think about um, how you were going to cut your costs and how parents were going to be co-opted into fundraising, which is a community activity, but it should be a community activity rather than a, a fundamental activity to that services operation. A necessity to operate, yeah. 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 What's your uh, advice, Lisa? Move states. <laughs> <laughs> um, some people do, don't they? They go across the border into Victoria from Or the ACT, <laughs> we're right here, people. We're right here. If you've yeah, got, you got a spare $6 million lying around, you can buy your own centre. Look, I, I don't know, and I don't know if I can actually say to New South Wales preschools what I would do because they've been fighting this. They've been doing having these new stupid models imposed upon them year after year, year after year. And they've gone to the barricades when they've had to, they've met with their MPs when they've had to, and they must be very, very tired of continually having to fight this battle. It's been going on, as I said, there was a 20-year funding freeze. So you can imagine the amount of time that, organisations and individuals have put in it. But I'd also say that the reason why this announcement was made was because of that action that they've taken before. So people universally, both outside of New South Wales and inside of New South Wales, now know that there is enough funding in New South Wales. So I think that what they've done has actually worked. They've put pressure on the state government to announce more funding yet again, even if it isn't their own funding. So they just have to keep doing it. Yeah. And I know that's not very good, <laughs> but that's all I yeah. can I think advocacy fatigue is a big uh, problem in the sector and, again, might be another topic to add to our slate of topics coming up. All right. Thanks, Lisa and Leanne, for going through that discussion with us. Look, I think it's... You know, we're very lucky, or I am very lucky on this podcast to have two very uh, knowledgeable and 
um, staunch advocates for um, that funding in New South Wales with us tonight. And thanks for walking us through it. But we might now expand out. So we look, we've looked at sort of state-based uh, funding for early childhood. We're going to expand right out to international uh, funding. We've had a new uh, report with lots of lovely graphs and data, which makes at least me very excited, and I think probably Lisa and Leanne as well. Um, yeah. Of course, of course. Um, so it's the it's what's called the Education at a Glance 2016 report. So and it's um, put out by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, uh, the OECD, which everyone might have um, sort of heard in news news articles and in various other um, you know sort of graphs and reports that come out. But it's essentially it's it's um, a large snapshot look at where. Um, a whole bunch of countries are doing in a wide range of economic indicators, so all the way from uh, early childhood education and care right up to a tertiary study. Um, obviously, for the benefit of this podcast, we're particularly looking at the early childhood dats and uh, data and stats. Um, it's a really big report. It's only recently come out. I think we're all probably still digesting it at the moment, but I think we just wanted to, as a sort of quick topic after a very long one we've just gone, is just probably... I don't know, maybe just pick out a few things that are particularly of interest for us in terms of where Australia sits. So, um, Leanne, I mean, you, did you want to sort of kick it off? What was maybe one of the big things that sort of stood out for you from the report? Um, well, maybe I'll start with some positives. The, um, gra- the graphs are really pretty. There's <laughs> <So that's> a- <laughs> great joy there for us in those graphs. And, um, and this... Uh, I mean, it's just interesting for people to engage with education at a glance because it gives it a really, like, it's a very interesting perspective on all of the countries um, that are sort of their their performance is documented in, in this report. And it's easy to see where Australia sits. So, I mean, there was a bit of talk on Twitter about Australia moving over a little bit more and performing a little bit better. Um, and I think there was a comment made that they have moved to the left a little bit. Australia's moved to the left, to which we'll obviously say that's about the only thing that Australia's moved to the left on. But um, in looking at it, there, there were some interesting things about um, teacher salaries for in what's determined as pre-primary in Australia are 35% higher than other OECD countries. So that was or they're in the, the top 30. Oh, I don't want to quote myself the wrong way there. But I thought that was interesting, but then it was a bit sad because that means that everybody's badly paid all over the world. Um, so that was that was one thing. But it, the one thing that we were sort of thinking about and having a, a, a conversation in the background about was about the private spending in Australia on pre-primary, which is the preschool or early childhood education, and it is pretty appalling so there is comparatively less public spending in this country on pre-primary than other countries and that there is a huge amount of private spending so when we talk about how much money is spent on early childhood we have to remember that it's the private expenditure that is the really big component. So I think it's 80%. And privately, and what you're actually talking about is the money spent by families as yes, opposed sorry, to by, yeah. by governments. Yeah, so it's money that is that is household. So it talks about it as household income is spent. So that's when I, yes, yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. Public is either money that's put in, well, by the government, it's money that's, that is actually put in by the government, and the private spending is money that's put in by the individuals. And interestingly, 
Just another fun fact that I found was that private expenditure increased after the global financial crisis. But people have less money, apparently. So that's that's interesting. I, I think there's a few different ways to sort of work the data on that, in that people have to spend their money privately because there's no public money left um, because it's all gone down the down the gurgler. Um, but people are valuing education and spending money on it. So that was interesting. But I, I think it needs a lot more digesting because you can work this data 24 different ways, I suppose. But it's definitely an issue for Australia that there is that uh, very high proportion of spending that they must make out of their own out of their own households, which really furthers the inequality in Australia. Because if you don't have it, you don't you can't spend it. Yeah, I think um, the main the the one I pull out is the big obvious one, which is just looking at the um, the amount of children aged three and four um, in you know, accessing early childhood education and, you know, Australia is not performing well, but is but it's kind of not just not performing well, but performing bizarrely. So Australia, West, where Australia sits in that table um, is really, it, it sort of highlights the bizarre way we fund and segregate the spending in, the, in, in Australia. So, um, you know, there's a huge amount of OECD countries that are just nailing the um, the spending on um, not just the year before school, so year four, so age four, but also age three. Um, Australia has very poor um, enrolment rates, but they sort of, when you combine the three and the four, it doesn't look too bad. But the spending on how that's done um, is really bizarre and strange. And it's interesting the um, the there's a an interesting graph that looks at the percentage of um, children enrolled in public and private institutions in pre-primary education and Australia has the third lowest um, enrolled in uh, public institutions. So we, our reliance on private, you know, sort of um, the, the, the market to fix this problem is really, uh, it's not very common in the OECD and I mean, I'd argue it's because it's probably not the best way to do it. But it just sort of reveals again in the overall, and it will, will obviously link to the OECD report in our show notes, but what it what it points out and has pointed out every time we get this snapshot and every time the OECD looks at Australia is that we just make it too complicated. And as I sort of said in the previous segment, we really do not want to spend uh, money on this. So the other big one, which um, often gets sort of publicised, is, is the um, the spending on early childhood as a percentage of GDP. And again, you know, Australia is um, you know right down the bottom. Um, we're was, not at the bottom though. We we're not have ha- moved I think, slightly up. <laughs> we've gone up a little bit, but it's still at about half the OECD average, which again is only the average. So there are, you know, a whole, you know, a bunch of countries spending far more and, and acknowledging that investment. So um, it just, yeah, it, it, it's almost just worth looking at it overall. You can kind of there, there are some positives. The the, uh, the the wages that Leanne mentioned also are ratios are some of the best in the OECD. But it's just strange that we we can't seem to move beyond this inability or this um, this concern about spending money on those do good for nothing children who won't go out and get a job until they're you know until they're eighteen. And it it's interesting how the government responded to the report. Um, uh, Simon Senator Birmingham said that um, look, you know, we're spending more money on other. On, on education than other countries, yet we're not 
you know, doing nearly as well in terms of performance. And I think that's something really interesting. We are spending more money on education overall, but we're spending a lot less on early education. Why can't anyone put those two figures together and go, hmm, we're spending more, spending less on early education and doing worse than other countries? Mm. Maybe if we tried to spend more on early education, we might do better than other countries. It's making too much sense, Lisa. That's not going to get anywhere yeah, with this. Sorry. There's, there's a cute um, graph in the the um, webinar which is titled up. I love this. Participation in pre-primary education is associated with a lower likelihood of becoming a low performer in mathematics. So <laughs> apart from the, um, the mishmash of the language that's used in that, it's basically saying if you go to early childhood education, if you, you engage in that, then you actually will do well in maths. And that's, you know, it, whether you agree with um, the standardised testing stuff and all of that sort of, you know, whatever, whichever way you go about it, if you participate in early childhood education, it's going to be a better life up ahead for you. Take note, federal government. We'll have, we want, we've, <laughs> can we send them the link to the webinar? But, um, yeah, we will include a link to that specific one as well. But... Um, yeah, I mean, but it does get back to that stuff that you're saying, Liam. You know, if there's so much evidence, because we talked about evidence last week, but there's so much evidence, and everybody cites the evidence. And even Mike Baird this week was, you know, to last week was that when the funding was announced, was talking about the evidence and the evidence. And there's, you know, all this, but the, the evidence is never, the, the citing of that evidence is never followed up with a reasonable contribution to actually, you know, fulfilling the obligations yeah. that countries have to the early childhood. Yeah. I think in Australia we like we've we seem to like the words around it. We just don't seem to want to do anything about it. And um, not to, as I did last week, sneak in an additional recommendation because we'll be going to those in a minute. But um, we talked a bit about the setup of the National Partnership Agreement in 2009. What went along with that was a um, what was called the Melbourne Declaration, um, which was a statement uh, sort of signed off by all the states and territory um, uh, ministers and so state territory, state, state, territory, and federal ministers, and was actually is actually referenced in the early years learning framework, which is a it's it, it is it's inspirational. It's a magnificent statement about the right of children to access uh, education, including early childhood education, and some lofty goals for what could happen if we get this right. But the problem is, you know, that lovely document was put together, and again, I'll include a link to it, but it hasn't led to the kind of action that is actually going to substantially change the way we do things. And, you know, the OECD report is sort of just another, you know, whole sheaf of documents which has said Australia goes about this, A, in a very bizarre and B, very ineffectual way. Mm. Another depressing, Gosh, depressing what's, spot what's to the good on. news? <laughs> Well, I'm hoping there might be some. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping there might be some in our maybe in our recommendations. But um, I think the only other thing we'd add is, you know, in terms of uh, doing this podcast, we do we do really recommend for people listening. If you're an educator, if you're you know someone who is you know just performing that you know amazing work in early childhood education, that it is really dry. It is really fun. Well, the answer the graphs are pretty. Um, I don't I don't quite see it myself, but they're, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they are magical and. And especially when you sort of look at the, um, 
you know, all of the little triangles and the diamonds that are placed across them as well to give you even more information. And and the, we did forget one other very exciting thing, which is if you live in Italy and you're a teacher, you get paid really well. <laughs> Mass migration to Italy from early childhood educators. But um, it, this is the stuff that it is really in my, I think it's good. It's good to know this stuff, and it's good to read it. And the OECD often include, um, you know, good summaries, and the webinars are fantastic. It's, it's kind of another good tool to have in your belt around um, whether you're interested in advocacy for early childhood education, or whether you're just interested in your role as an early childhood educator. How Australia sits in this stuff, it is, um, it is really important. And when we're having those discussions with ministers and people in, in, in with the capacity to make decisions, the more data and evidence we have to back ourselves up. The, the greater hope that we'll make change for the for the children we work with. So um, go and check out some of those pretty graphs and we'll, we'll include lots of links to them. But we might uh, move on to our recommendations for the week. We hope everyone's enjoyed that big um, discussion of the two topics we've had tonight. But as we always do, we like to just chuck a couple, just, just, uh, just a thing each to have a very quick um, link to, uh, which you might find interesting and have a very quick chat. So... I'm going to go to Lisa first. What's your recommendation for this week? Look, my recommendation, it follows on from that first topic we talked about, looking at a country that actually, or a city within a country that actually um, has introduced universal pre-K education. So in New York City, they went from 20,000 places for um, children in what they call pre-K, which is basically preschool, and they expanded it up to 70,000 in a six-month period. And this article, it's written, um, it's um, uh, an article in the Atlantic magazine, goes through how they did it, what the political imperative was to do it. And the one that, the part of the article that I really like is the reason why it was decided to make it a universal access thing. So often when we talk about universal access in Australia, we talk about it as the way to ensure that everyone that really does need a, a particular um, government service gets it. So rather than targeting it, you make it universal. But what they decided in um, New York, in New York City, was that they'd make it universal because if the rich were getting it too, it would never disappear because once the rich are getting something for free, they'll hang on to it for you know for for life. And I reckon that's a pretty good sort of you know, policy way of implementing a policy. So New York children now all have access to free you know, um, pre-K education. And I think it's really worth actually the that is a huge advocacy victory in the US. So probably. Oh, look, there's probably other ones, but probably the country that makes things more complicated and ridiculous and stupid for early childhood education than Australia is the United States. They just, they're, I mean, I think funding of education for young children is seen as the height of socialist uh, um, craziness. So I think they honestly just, we, we sort of fight that conservative view here in the US. It is, it, it's ramped up to 11 that it's really in some states and it's just completely viewed as completely the parents' responsibility and we will have nothing whatsoever to do with it. So to have, yeah, an incredible victory for advocacy in a very entrenched, difficult place like the US is um, gives us some hope, I think. If they, can, if they can do it there, maybe we can do it here. For sure. For sure. Leanne, what's your one? 
Um, well, I avoided a conversation article this week because I was banned <laughs> from using them. Um, so my one comes, mine comes out of the States. It's, it's an opinion piece on the profession of early childhood education and it actually highlights the point that it is not a profession. Early childhood teaching at this stage is not a profession because it doesn't have the defining characteristics of a profession uh, everybody can't agree on what it is. There's not enough professional organisations to um, support the pursuit of excellence in early childhood teaching. And it makes some really great points which are relevant in Australia. Um, and it, it really is sort of saying, let's stop kidding ourselves. Let's have some really hard discussions about what profession, what being a professional is, what defines it, and then maybe we can get on with actually working towards a strong professional structure for early childhood educators. So I think it's a it's an interesting one. So just a non-controversial choice this week, Leanne. Well, yeah. I, I actually found it a fascinating article, Leanne. Now, I didn't think it was that controversial. It's a deliberately it provocative headline. So the, the headline is early childhood education is not a profession. It's deliberately provocative, I think, to get reading. But it is, yeah, it is, it is a far more interesting article than the headline suggests. Yeah, but it, it makes... So what's yours, Liam? What's yours? Oh, I thought we were going to keep discussing Leanne's for just oh, a little bit. I was just going to say, I think it makes the really... Um, the, the really strong points and the things that we have to face up to in order to move this sort of argument forward about pay and, you know, or, or pay parity, all of those things, it does really bring that stuff into question. So I think it is good because it, it highlights that. It really, you know, amplifies those messages, but they're hard things to face when people have um, trained so hard uh, you know, work, worked really hard in their profession and then see that those structures aren't there to actually support them as a professional. Um, and that's why, you know, we have these continuing arguments about pay parity as well. Yeah, we'll have a read and if there's any feedback to flick to us, we'd love from here from it. But it is, yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually a very interesting read. Um, mine, I'm, I actually wish I'd done mine first now so we hadn't ended on such a sort of sour note. But... Um, Mine is a is an article in The Guardian, um, which broke, and I talked about this in episode one with Lisa, the Nauru files, which talked about um, the experiences of uh, children and um, men and women as well in immigration detention in Nauru. The cases that were exposed in that leak of documents were from primarily 2013 to 2015. Um, this article... Uh, is basically more of the same, but it's from this year. It's from very relatively recently. So it's from the first, I think, four months of the year. And I bring it up just because it, I think it's something that needs to stay in our collective consciousness and it particularly needs to stay in front of mind in our work as early childhood educators. I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the amount coming in. And it's also really easy. We know that the poll suggests that I think there was a hideous poll that came out that almost made me cry, which said, there, you know, there's around 50% of Australians think we're not being hard enough on refugees coming in by boat, which just I, it almost breaks me <laughs> that, that that statistic. So nothing will change unless we we sort of see this and go, it's not good enough, and continue to have the conversation. And I do, and I've written a lot about this, and uh, it, we are we are a hugely untapped resource. We, in terms of the zero to five space, so for young children, we are the um, 
we're the people that do the work in that space. Imagine if, you know, my, I would, I would, you know, die happy if, imagine if the early childhood education sector rose up and said, this is not good enough. And we will run a mm. huge advocacy campaign to say, we work with children every day. We know how important it is what we do. And these camps, these island torture camps are breaking children irreparably because even if we released the children tomorrow what the damage that has been done to them in the years they have spent there will stay with them their entire lives so it and I, isn't it isn't this part a part of our obligation as as yeah. um, people who uphold children's rights yeah. on an everyday basis isn't that part of our yeah. obligation as people who are invested in this sector yeah and i think i i I'm an early childhood educator. I'm an early childhood teacher. I work with incredible people who work in a space. I know how hard it is. I know the demands on people's time, the demands on um, what early childhood educators have to do every day for very little pay and very little uh, very little um, in respect in society. This is pretty much the only issue I will go. I do not think it is good enough to be an early childhood educator and work with young children and not care about this. And I, I can't be any blunter than that. I... I do not think it is good enough and you you have to read it you have to find ways to do something about it because these are children and we can argue about whether it's a profession or not but if you've chosen to work in this profession my view is you are signing up to not just thinking about the children directly in front of you but the children in your community the children all across australia and the children who are legally trying to seek safety with us and are fleeing the most hideous situations we can possibly imagine so i do absolutely i do i don't shy away from it and if you yeah if you listen to this podcast or if you and you haven't thought about it before please do and there are a whole range of organizations that can help out with your advocacy and i'd particularly recommend um the australia the asylum seeker resource center um you can just find that by googling asylum seeker resource center or chill out um chil out which do some fantastic advocacy specifically for children so um yeah i should have done that one first because it ended up a bit of a sound note but i think it's something i i will return to in this podcast time and time again because it, it it worries me that we're a bit entrenched in australia in this view that this is the price we have to pay to keep our borders safe whatever the hell that means um but we might move on to wrapping up and as we sort of say every week we want to really thank everyone who is listening and enjoying to the podcast um we really really value anyone who rates and reviews us, uh, particularly leaves a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other um, early childhood educators find the podcast. Um, I, this, and we've, we've said anyone who leaves us a review will get a shout out in the podcast. So I'd like to give a shout out this week to Bronwyn Hins, who's left a lovely um, review on our iTunes store. Um, and has uh, talked a bit about uh, in, in a lovely way about how she's um, she's been engaging with the podcast, and she was a big fan of your nappy land joke from from last week, Leanne. So so there you go. You've got a career in stand-up comedy if the podcast doesn't work out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> So thank you very much, Ronan. Big you, shout <laughs> Big Robin. shout out, and we, we've um, I've, we've. I think we're all now friends with her on Twitter and she's, um, we really appreciate her sort of retweeting and supporting of the show and in that I way as well. And she uses the show in two ways, doesn't oh. she, uh, Leah? Does she? When, um, if her um, uh, children, if her young child can't get to sleep, she just puts it <laughs> play. Guaranteed to send anyone under two to sleep. <laughs> Who'd have known? Who'd have known? 
<laughs> so yes, if you so our, our reward for for helping us out by giving us a review is we will give you a big shout out in our next episode. So please head over to um to our iTunes store if you if you have the time and it's really appreciated. But that's uh, that's our show for whenever you are choosing to listen to this, whether it is during the day or at night. Um, you can find if you want to give us any feedback or let us know how we're doing, good or bad, you can find us on Twitter at Early Edu Show. That's Early E-D-U Show. You can find me at Liam McNicholas, all one word. And me at Lisa J. Bryant. And me at Leanne in Gibbs 3. And until we catch up for another riveting discussion next week, it's bye from me. And me. And me, because I'm rushing off now to stream The Bachelorette. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> what sort of people do I do a podcast with? <laughs>